So we are going to be in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6. So um, the, after today, the, the sections will get a good bit shorter. Um, so we'll be reading entire chapters at a time. Um, but we're going to look at uh, basically the bulk of chapter 2 and into just a little bit into chapter 3. And this is what is known as the, the second introduction in the book of Judges. And we've tackled the first introduction last week. Here's the second introduction. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him with the, within the boundaries of his inheritance, Timnath Perez, uh, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And, uh, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and, and Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers and who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as he, the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Uh, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were corrupt, more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or uh, their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon. 
from Mount, ba uh, Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters uh, they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So, as I said, this is the second uh, chapter in the book of Judges. This is essentially the second introduction uh, to the book of Judges. And if the first chapter, the first introduction, focused a lot on geography, uh, then this chapter focuses on the generations of Israel that came immediately when they took the land. Now, when I was in my final year at uh, the military college, we did a project on the Battle of Chickamauga, uh, in Georgia, during the Civil War. We had to study the battle, and then each of us had to present a paper on an officer in, in, in the battle, and we were assigned different officers from both sides of the battle. I was assigned uh, to write a paper on a man named Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, who, as it turns out, uh, whose exploits, uh, he's, m the most famous things were not during the Civil War, but as it turns out, as he was the uh, first Grand Wizard of the KKK. So, uh, you know, the more you know. It's a... Uh, now, once we had done all that, though, then we took a field trip because the, the, the college I was at was in North Georgia, so Chickamauga was not that far. So, so we actually went over to the battlefield and walked, and we saw how the battle had progressed. And our prior study had prepared us to comprehend uh, actually walking the field. And this chapter functions in a similar way. We are introduced here to the core problems of the book and, and that that, that are running through all the life and exploits of the individual judges we will be getting into in the coming weeks. And so tonight we're going to consider three things uh, uh, that this chapter presents to us, which is a generational concern, followed by uh, a meditation on God's anger and compassion, and finally, the mystery of God's providence. So first, let's turn to a generational concern in verses 6 through 13. And as we consider the generations of Israel that immediately rise up after Joshua and that generation pass away, we are confronted with the fragility of human faithfulness. The author jumps back in time prior to Joshua's death after they had initially taken the land. Uh, now, this is a, a wonderful summary, a beautiful picture. Everything started off so well. Uh, the people worshipped Yahweh together. Uh, and they did so throughout Joshua's lifetime and even uh, the, uh, through the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua. Uh, these Israelites had seen all the wonders of God. Now, if you think about that, oftentimes when we think about that, we think wonders of God for Israelites, that must be Egypt. But that's not it, right? Because those guys died in the desert. <laughs> those guys who saw the, what, what God did for them in Egypt, they went out to the wilderness they died in the wilderness. Their children came in and took the land. So this is talking about the children who had come in. So all God's works and wonders referred to them taking the land, how God had helped them and blessed them under the time of Joshua, and certainly even what God had done for them in, uh, in, in the Exodus. And so, uh, and so, and so, uh, so, so they, lived, they lived faithfully. Uh, they remembered. They had seen the works of God. They knew the works of God. They knew Yahweh. And uh, but now um, 
And so, and so basically the summary, is, this could be summarized in, in just three uh, phrases. Godly worship, godly leaders, and godly memories. And then Joshua died, and he was buried in Ephraim. And I'm just going to pull up an old map we used last week in just that green area there. So he, got, uh, he was buried in that uh, green section uh, in the tribal boundary of Ephraim, north of one of the mountains. And, uh, and the author lets us know that bad things are afoot because this generation, he says, this new generation that came up, does not know two crucial things. First, they did not know Yahweh. Secondly, they did not know the works that he had done. Now, it's highly unlikely that the children of these faithful Israelites had grown up never having heard of Yahweh, going like, well, who's that? But as Delroth Davis notes in his commentary, this wording does not indicate absolute ignorance of Yahweh, but that they had no respect, no regard for Yahweh or for his works. They heard about it, and they didn't care. Now, first, we need to consider the speed of the decline. A single generation, and it turned dark. There certainly was a failure, we could say, in religious instruction. But there seems to have been a failure of faith on the part of the rising generation as well. To better understand the nature of, of, the, of this unfaithfulness, we look to verses 11 through 13. Or we are told that the people did what was evil in the sight of God. We are reminded in the, that God is the ultimate evaluator of the conduct of men, and especially of the conduct of his church. Further, we are told that they worship the Baals. Now, what, why is that plural? Well, it's, it, well first, it, it does refer to Baal, the Mesopotamian storm god, who is regarded as the god of uh, agricultural for, fertility, because rain produces crops. Uh, but also to say the Baals is a term to refer to Baal and the lesser pantheon of Canaanite gods that were worshipped in the land. Uh, and now uh, Baal, uh, and actually I have a little statue uh, picture of him. So there he is in all his wondrous glory. It's hard to see. It's actually an ancient uh, rendering of him from uh, roughly in that time period. It, you have this storm god. He's, he's riding the back of a bull. The thing on the bottom is a bull. And he's standing on top of the bull. Now, sometimes he eventually got mixed up with the bull, and he would have the head of a bull. But that was kind of this power, you know. It was it, it's, bulls were a sign of power, and so uh, and so oftentimes a bull would be the symbol of Baal. Baal, the legend said, had a consort. He had a lady friend named Ashtoreth, and we are told that the people worshipped Baal and his wife. Uh, now, I, it was interesting, I, I would try to show Ashtoreth, but as I quickly discovered, uh, there are not uh, public church-friendly images of the goddess of human fertility that you want to show anyone. So, uh, so we're, we're going to leave uh, those on the internet. Um, but, uh, uh, but consider the, the stark language here. They abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. God took this personally. They infuriated Yahweh because they abandoned him and worshipped other gods. So two questions you need to ask here is, first, why do the Israelites do this, number one? And number two, why does God get so mad about it? 
Well, first, one of the general beliefs in that time was that gods were tied to specific lands. Gods were landlocked, as it were. Israel had just come into the land of Canaan, and they had failed to drive out the Canaanites who worshipped these gods. So as they lived among the Canaanites, they heard about these gods uh, of the land, and, and, and now that they lived there, began to believe that they needed to start paying homage uh, to uh, you know, this, this pagan deity in order to get the blessing now that they were living in his land, the land that he was associated with. And so we should see that uh, not only were, are, are the people prone to sin and, and stubborn and, and, uh, and idolatrous in their hearts, as, as other passages say uh, about God's people, but they are also feeling the pressure of local customs and traditions. And they're feeling the pressure to compromise their faith in the commands of God, which, as they give in, leads ultimately to their rejection of their God, of the true God. But why is it that God gets so angry about his people bowing down to the wrong statue or statues? Well, first, it's more than just simply bowing down to the wrong statue. It's more than simply just uh, bowing down to that thing or having that thing in your house. Uh, the uh, worshiping Baal isn't simply like going to a Protestant church service where instead of a cross, they have a statue of Baal up there and you sing songs about how great Baal is. Uh, the, the, the Baal temples would often employ temple prostitutes whom worshipers would engage with in order to encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to do the same uh, so that the rains would come and a good harvest would result. Psalm 106, verses 36 to 39, uh, summarizes it well. It says, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Um, but, but it's, and so, and it's also interesting that Baal, that, that, that Baal has, he's got to have a wife, and he's got to have a wife, he's got to have a girlfriend or, or a concubine, a consort, in order to be able to bring the rain, essentially, uh, to the land. But it's interesting when you compare it to God, who has no need of a wife. He has no needs like that. He doesn't need other, other lesser God beings to, to complete him. Uh, rather, God has taken Israel to be his pre- treasured possession, to be, as it were, his bride, as the prophet Hosea so powerfully uh, images for us in his, in his book. But his bride has abandoned him and walked in unfaithfulness to her covenant husband, and so God is justly angry. And so we are, uh, and so we are still yet today called to covenant faithfulness. And there's a lot of warnings here for us as Christians, as the church today. We are, we, we are to be wary of raising a generation of children who know of God, who know of Christ, but do, who do not actually know him. This is more than simply instructing our children in the content of the faith, but also modeling it for, in real life for them. It involves, it involves praying for them, correcting and rebuking them when they do wrong, encouraging and blessing them when they do well, and comforting them when they are in pain and sorrow. It requires, it requires believers uh, living around them, loving the Lord, even in our imperfect ways. Further, we are called, as Jesus said, to be in the world, but not of the world. And if we are going to be in the world, but not of the world, we are going to face those temptations to compromise our faith, to give in to the principles of the world. 
We are to have our minds, as Paul says, not conformed to the world through the elementary principles, but to have our minds to be transformed through the renewal of our mind. We're not to be taken captive by every, every secular wind that blows in our culture, politics, or even in the church. We're called to love and the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ while we live in a world that seeks to turn us away from the Lord. It is no easy task to be faithful in this life. And so we must be concerned with raising the next generation in faithfulness to the Lord. And second, uh, we need to wonder here at God's anger and compassion. And as we do, we need to uh, contemplate the problem with cheap repentance in verses 14 and 19. The book of Deuteronomy, which was given to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab prior to entering into the promised land, was um, it threatened many things against the people of Israel if they were to, to do what they did here in the book of Judges. And in f- verses 14 to 16, we see the discipline and anger of God. And, and he says in that section, just as the Lord swore to do. It's referencing back to the covenant document in Deuteronomy. And his anger burned against the Israelites. The key here comes in verse 15, which states that Yahweh was against them and brought disaster on them. His hand was against them to harm them, just like he warned and sworn to do. The Israelites were defeated, and they were at the mercy of their enemies. And it just the author just writes, they suffered greatly. But God was moved to pity for his people. Though they sinned desperately and wickedly, he loved them. And when they cried out to him, he would raise up judges to deliver them. In verses 16 and 19, we are given a summary of what these judges would do. They would be raised up by God. And in miraculous and non-miraculous ways, they would deliver Israel from their foes. They apparently would also instruct the Israelites in the right way to go to to, you know, to stop worshiping the Canaanite gods and to worship Yahweh alone, but Israel would not listen. They would listen during the life of the judge, but they wouldn't actually listen. They wouldn't actually change. They rejected the wisdom of their fathers, and they would persist in their idolatrous worship. The author says that when the judge died, they would act even more sinfully, even more corruptly, like a, like, like a, you ever hold a, held a leash on a dog that's just yanking, trying to get away, you know, and just, and basically the judge dying is like the leash coming off each time. And they would go further and further into corruption. The last line is particularly clear. It says they did not turn from their evil practices. The the word to turn in Hebrew is the word repent, because that's what repentance is. So he's saying they did not actually repent of their idolatry. They were sorry for the sufferings. They were sorry for the pain. They were sorry for all these different things. But they did not actually turn from their idolatry. They repented in their words, but not in their deeds. And we are warned that repentance only in word, repentance that, only, that never touches the actions of life, is only superficial will only last as long as one is being watched or as long as one is being restrained from sin. And the the church can actually uh, uh, make this worse by having a form of cheap repentance. 
The problem is, is that cheap repentance is covered with lavish praise about the grace of God. And so someone will come around and they've sinned grievously. They've harmed people in their sin. But they come weeping. They come with tears. They come with on their knees and they confess and they're they're laying on the ground prostrate weeping, you know, and and many, many people in good intention will say, you're forgiven. You're free. You have repented. Done. And it's not to say that God's forgiveness does not come upon that person in that moment. But one thing we have learned over time in church history is that repentance is demonstrated as well. Repentance is not simply verbal because there's also a lot of people who know to fake repentance. There's a lot of people who know how to cry. There's a lot of people that, um, you know, there's I remember um, uh, at Presbytery one time when it was at North Point years ago, probably eight, eight years ago or so. Um, there was, uh, we had a guest speaker who was talking about child, child protection in churches and how uh, uh, churches really needed to get it in gear and get, get locked up on child protection for, to protect children, but also because at that time, the Justice Department under uh, the, the president, uh, Barack Obama, was looking for ev- evangelical churches to go after <laughs> uh, to, to see if they were not protecting children. Now, the guy who was speaking had had, uh, had had his own child molested in a church. He was a pastor. And so, and so, he, had gone through, he, and so he had gone through these problems and these, and these serious issues. And he said, when you go through it, he said, people who do this stuff, who do these wickedly evil things, he said, they are good at crying. They are good at repenting when they get caught. And they cry, 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 and they give you the sob story, and they give you the sob story. But at the end of the day, when you get to behind behind them and you and it doesn't work, he was like, there is a snarling beast behind all that. But you don't know because they're so good at faking it. And so true repentance doesn't come cheaply. Also no situation when I was an intern, we had a massive, massive problem happen. And we had a ruling elder who got excommunicated from the church because of something that he had done to his own son And he said, I am repentant, but the church refuses to accept my repentance. But what he but his repentance from the accounts of everyone who was in the room, I was not in the room when he was giving his account of repentance. But his repentance was. My life's so terrible now. My life's so hard. My life will never be the same. My life and it's all me, 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 me. And it was his repentance amounted to a pity party for the consequences of his sin. It was not what he had done to his own son. It was not what he had done to the church and the reputation of the church. It was not that he had sinned against God. His repentance was only about the fact that he was sorry that he was in trouble and that his life was real bad now. That is not repentance. And so we have to be very careful how we define repentance. We don't want to drag people over coals and 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 shame them and embarrass them and you know and, and do that but at the same time we can't just give cheap repentance to people and just say oh yeah you're restored if you say you're sorry we can say yes god's forgiveness is for you but trust has to be built it is not simply restored as someone who has sinned grievously uh, needs to demonstrate repentance and so we must be careful here as the people of god to not give in to uh, cheap the, the temptation of cheap repentance 
in the favor of, of trying to uh, show how amazing God's grace is. His grace is amazing. His grace saves murderers and the most awful uh, sins that we could ever commit. But we would also say, but his grace is not cheap because it costs the blood of his own son. And repentance is, cannot be cheap either. It must be demonstrated in the fruit of our lives. And it's also, if you go read our Book of Church Order and, and what it says about discipline and restoration, it does talk about demonstrated repentance when we do that. But now that was a little dark <laughs> getting into that. But even in that darkness here, we actually uh, encounter the enduring hope of God's inexplicable love. The enduring hope of God's inexplicable love in this very dark period of the life of Israel. Israel had an amazing story of salvation. They had been rescued from slavery in Egypt by the miraculous power of God. And now they were his, his people. They, he had brought them into this wonderful land. He had given them, given them this home for them to dwell in and for him to live with them through the temple or at that time through the tabernacle. But how constantly and consistently they would forget his love. They would forget his deeds. They would forget him. How often they would sin against his mercy. And yet, in the face of that, again and again and again, he loves them. Yet again, he delivers them. You know, you know after, after the second, third, or fourth time, the reader of the book of Judges says, Lord, why don't you just cast them out? And the Lord replies, because they're mine. Because I covenanted with them. Because I love them. Because they belong to me. The text certainly reminds us of even the fearful love of God that will not abandon us to our own even when we want it to. But a love that disciplines us and restores us. It is the same God who delivers us and loves us in our ugliness. And in the midst of our sinful stupidity. This text is a hard and dark text. But it still has this bright shining light in the midst of that darkness that shines all the brighter. Which is the mercy and love of God for his people. And that ought to give hope to any of us. Who would call ourselves disciples of Christ. Who would call ourselves children of the living God. That if we should find ourselves in a, in, in, in a moment of darkness of our own making, reaping the whirlwind of our own evil actions, bearing the awful load of our own poor decisions, then look here in this text and see how even in the midst of this dark sinfulness, a cycle of sin and deliverance, we see the unrelenting love of God that we cannot explain, except that God just can't help but love his people. Let us take encouragement that as his children, even if we run from him, and, that, and even if his discipline comes upon us, he is also yet there to love and forgive and to restore us. And so we've seen so far that this generational concern to raise up a generation of, of faithful believers, we see God's inexplicable love in the darkness of sin. And finally tonight, we consider the mystery of God's providence. And this takes us from verse 20 in chapter 2 to chapter 3 
verse 6. And here, just simply, we need to, uh, this word that I really love, which is multifaceted. That, that God's multifaceted providence. Because people often wonder how, how, God, how God's providence works. We tend to have a, but we have a tend, to very, tend to have a very linear uh, view of God's plans and the order of events and circumstances that, that, um, that bring about some end. And, and God does do that, and that's, how, that's basically how it works. Um, but what we tend to forget is that there, there can be more than one reason why God wills something to occur, why God providentially brings something about. When we get to the end... Uh, of chapter 3, verse 6, we have a question. Why, why exactly are the Canaanite tribes left in Israel? We're told, uh, we're told before, back in chapter 1, that part of it is because of the will of the Canaanites themselves. They persisted in staying in the land. They had iron chariots. They were really strong warriors, all that. Secondly, we're told in verse 21 of chapter 2 that God stopped driving out the Canaanites because of Israel's violation of the covenant. Third, Yahweh says repeatedly that he did this in order to test the Israelites. And there's two aspects of that testing. The first aspect is a test of faithfulness, of covenant faithfulness, or to reveal their lack of faithfulness, as is stated in verse 22 and also chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. The second aspect of this testing is chapter 3, verse 2, is that Yahweh left the nations there to teach Israel how to fight because the upcoming generation had not known war. And would need to know how to fight and to protect themselves. Okay, so which is it? Did God leave the Israelites there because they were tough warriors, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, as an ongoing test of faith, or to train them to fight? And the answer is yes. All of them. God had multiple and complementary purposes for the Canaanites remaining in the land through Israel's failure and sin. And let us then take comfort as the church today that even in the mess of our world and even the mess the church often finds itself in, by the providence of God, he is still ordering all things for his glorious purpose and end, which is the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so as we contemplate the the mysterious and uh, multifaceted uh, purpose uh, and providence of God, then we should should be led to give thanks for the providence of God. I've quoted John Piper before in sermons that uh, where he said that God is always doing like 10 things, you know, you know, at any given moment. He's doing about 10,000 things in your life. You are aware of about three of them. Right. And I would amend that. Uh, to say that God is not only doing 10,000 things in your life, but he's also doing each of them for a whole host of reasons and purposes that you are unaware of. There's all kinds of complications and things, and, and, and it's so funny because people will get really caught up on this, and they'll get really kind of frustrated about this. They'll be like, so are you saying that God, you know, in his providence cares about the, the path of the butterfly or the mosquito and things like that? And it's like, that seems so far beneath him. That just sounds, this, it just sounds stupid. There's people who say something like that. And you're just like, okay, well, right. But you're talking to someone who can't do more than one thing at a time, right? You say it as if it's hard for God, but God's just like, yeah, 
all right? Because in the beginning, it was just me, and then there was things, and I spoke them all into existence, so it's not hard for me to order all these things according to the glorious purpose of my will. And so we think of the church history and the councils of Nicaea and, and, and Chalcedon where, uh, you know, there's no way that those men could have anticipated the, the purposes and the effects of all those, of those councils. They certainly hoped that the, if for the, the protection of orthodoxy concerning the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, that, they, that these things would persevere. But they could not have anticipated the actual outworkings uh, that went into the period of the medieval church, the reformation that followed, and so on. The fact that we are uh, still confessing those creeds today. And, so we, and, and we also need to notice, we think back into history, that what we call history are only the things that we know about. And that's more than we can possibly comprehend. How many people and events have occurred which are, sig which are significant, important, amazing things that have been lost to the, 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 you know, the dustbin of history simply because nobody was there to write it down? Or it was written down and it got destroyed and we have no idea it happened. But God knows and he purposed all of it for his glorious purpose in his providence. And so let us then rejoice that even in a period like the judges, where we find ourselves in a similar type of darkness and situation in the church or even in the country in which we live, that, that we have a God who is never out of control, never at a loss for what to do. Let us stand amazed at, at how God works all things for his glory and the good of his people. Let us be amazed at the God who works like this, who thinks like this, who desires us, us of all people, to worship him, to sing praises to him, to love him, because he can't help but love us. So we need to be clear here, though. The message of the book of Judges is not self-salvation through covenant faithfulness. All that focus on covenant unfaithfulness, and we'll get into more and more specifics of it as we go, is not about, well, fix it by doing better, by working harder. It is clear in the book of Judges that, uh, that there is a call for a Savior who is the ultimate judge, who will deliver God's people from their sinfulness and bondage. The true answer to generational faithfulness, to breaking the dark cycles of sin, and even how we might comprehend the transcendent doctrine of the providence of God is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the crystal, the beauty, the gem, the diamond on the ring of God's providence is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who crystallizes the purposes of God's multifaceted providence, which is to reveal his glorious grace and his redeeming love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that... We don't have to know everything. That we can look back at generations that have gone before us, that we can see their strengths and their failures. We can see it in the church. We can look at ourselves and we can consider our own strengths and failures now. But we don't need to fret and, and panic. Lord, we simply need to trust. We simply need to rest. And then in your mercy and grace to seek to walk in faithfulness to your commands. Lord, we do pray that you would help us 
as a church to raise generation after generation of faithful Christians who love and serve you and adore you. We pray, Lord, that as a church we would, by your mercy, break cycles of dark sin. Lord, that we would not make a habit of, of, of accepting or, or commending uh, a cheap repentance or cheap grace. But that we, would give, that we would give out the gospel freely. The gospel that saves even the worst sinners. And that we would live lives of repentance and faith. And that we would call everyone who calls themselves by the name of Christ, who says that they are repentant, to live such a life as we would model for them. And Father, we pray that you would continue to amaze us by the mystery of your providence. And Lord, may we be more and more amazed at the providence of grace that is in the good news of the gospel. And Lord, may you do as, uh, as the Apostle Paul said in the book of Ephesians and work in our hearts and minds to deepen to deepen and expand our capacity to comprehend the depth and width and height of your love for us in Jesus Christ. That we may rejoice, that we may give you glory, whether we are in times of blessed providences or hard providences, but that we would always wonder at the God who works all things for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.